Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Tara Shine is an understated rock star within the climate and social action community. She is an international climate change negotiator and advisor to governments and world leaders on environment and development policy. Tara was the special advisor to the Mary Robinson Foundation, looking at climate justice. And she has been the climate advisor to the elders. Tara is currently chair of the Board of Trustees for the International Institute of Environment and Development. And in 2020, Tara delivered the Royal Institution's Christmas Lectures. Now, I don't normally talk about the work that we do here at Business Fights Poverty on this podcast, but today I want to mention it as we have been working really hard with Tara behind the scenes and the quite awesome Jane Nelson from Harvard on the vital question of how business can ensure people are at the centre of climate action. My conversation with Tara today during this podcast is all about this topic, and we'll delve into it in just a moment. But I've popped a bunch of links into the words that do sit alongside this so that you too can follow up with it and take part and be part of the change that we need to see. So Tara, welcome. Thank you, Katie. Thanks so much. Delighted to join you. Great to have you. Tara, I wanted to start off our conversation today. Our podcast is all about how business can or should tackle poverty. Why is climate change a part of this? Yeah, so it may not seem immediately obvious, but if you think about any kind of crisis that faces the world, so COVID's a really good example. And the people who are most vulnerable to COVID are the people who are most um, disadvantaged in the society who bear the brunt of inequality, who, who maybe due to reasons of race or gender or age are more vulnerable members of society. And so we've seen with, with COVID how those people have been most impacted by, this, by the disease. And climate change is no different. It will have the greatest impact on the people that are already at disadvantage, that are already vulnerable in society. So whether that's older people and being more vulnerable to heat waves or people living in poor quality, housing being more vulnerable to to flooding, for example. What we see is is the same with all of the crises in the world. The people who are at greatest disadvantage, the people who are already living in poverty will be at greatest risk. I wanted to bring in the sort of a bit of nomenclature sort of banded Mm -hmm. around here, this this sort of idea of climate justice, which is bringing that kind of supporting vulnerable people, mitigating or helping people adapt to climate change. What does this mean to business? I mean, is there even a business case yet? I mean, are there practical examples of business taking action in this space? Yeah, so this is quite new language, I think, climate justice to business. But broken down, it's things that business has, has always cared about. So it's, it's really about a business looking after its social license to operate. And for business, it's about making sure that it really is putting people at the center of what it's doing and realizing that that applies whether your focus is on human rights or community engagement or reducing emissions. So I think in many cases, we have companies that are thinking about 
one or the other. The question is, are you thinking about both and are you thinking about them in a joined up way? So you can be a renewable energy company working really hard to do everything that is good in terms of environment and climate and really your whole business purpose will be about bringing down emissions. But if you aren't also equally informed about human rights along your supply chain in the communities where your infrastructure is based, you can actually end up inadvertently undermining human rights. And so even having a business purpose that is clearly very much focused on social or environmental change, we have to make sure that we are actually looking at two sides of the coin all the time. So again, you could be working on bioplastics, for example, because you're absolutely motivated to find a solution to the plastics crisis in our oceans. But that could mean that you're growing crops that are displacing food crops, which is leading to insecurity, which is obviously having a negative effect on people. So it's not enough to make decisions or or, or actions that are unilateral in their desire to do good. It has to be rounded in the environmental, social and economic benefits. And I wanted to sort of pick up a bit on the businesses who have sort of obviously started trying to think about these things. And as more organisations come to the table and thinking, hopefully more holistically around social and environmental issues joined up, what are the challenges? What, what are potentially holding companies back in being able to make a real difference in this space as potentially climate change is coming down the pike really pretty, pretty fast? Yeah, so I think the challenges are different according to what size of business you are. So for the bigger businesses, I'd say it's that they probably have different teams working on different sides of this sustainability challenge. So you may have one team that's absolutely focused on your net zero targets and your exposure to climate risk, but they may never have had a conversation with your colleagues working on the work you're doing to contribute to social justice or diversity and inclusion or the well-being of your workforce. They, They tend to be all very, very separate conversations. So I think for big businesses, it's about connecting the dots and getting us out of those silos. For smaller businesses, I think, you know, human resources are more stretched. Having the right expertise can be tricky. So if you're lucky, you could have one great sustainability person who does see and give equal focus to the environmental and social sides of your your business purpose. But it may, may be that that one person has expertise in one area and not the other. And so that also can be a struggle. The challenge is all around connecting the dots. And again, as we do in, in universities and in schools and in government departments, we tend to put Things like human rights, for example, in different boxes to things like technical solutions to climate change. Yet right in the middle of all of this are people. Their people are your employees, they're your customers, they're the people who live and work along your supply chain. And what we have to do is make sure that in doing the right thing for, for the climate, we don't inadvertently stand on people and their rights as we go. I wanted to drill down a bit more. I mean, you are a climate scientist who works on social, or are you a social scientist working on climate? <laughs> from your from your experience, you know, if you are sitting within one of those specialisms, how can we better work together? How can we learn from one another our expertise? How can we collaborate better? What would be your advice if somebody was setting out trying to to do this? If I'm setting out trying to do this, to be honest, Tara. Well, so I am an environmental scientist that I guess has always been interested in the social science of what I do, always very interested in how people fit in. But, you know, when I started working on climate justice, I had to sit down and listen and learn a lot from people who are specialists in human rights, for example. I didn't really truly realize the power of human rights to help me achieve my goals as an environmental scientist till I took the time to stop and listen. So I think a key thing we all need is a bit of humility. None of us in any one discipline has the answer. 
that's kind of what I loved about doing the Royal Institution Christmas lectures this year. The whole message there was that it took at least three of us guest lecturers to explain the whole story of planet Earth. It couldn't possibly be one discipline or another. And the same applies here. So we have to be humble, know that none of us and no one discipline knows everything, and then look for opportunities to sit down and listen to each other and look for opportunities to collaborate with each other. In the end of the day, you know, the, the broader the base of participation in, in climate decision making, the better the outcome. And that it means within businesses getting, you know, different teams, the greatest possible cross-section of your employee base engaged. And in society, it means that we need everybody participating in climate, in climate action and decision making, not just those that are green, not just people who are middle class, not just people of a certain race or background but that everybody has room to come to the table and bring their best ideas and their best creativity. And that applies the same to climate justice. We, it needs to be a more broad-based approach. So it, it, it can't just be climate people solving a climate problem. It has to be a whole range of people who actually sign up to make society better, more equal, and more inclusive. And that will enable us to take better action on climate change. And you talked there about different sort of backgrounds, different skills. But you also mentioned earlier about the sort of the challenges of one issue or one solution actually having potentially positive and negative impacts across those different social and environmental issues. How do you manage trade-offs? Like how does how do you start ranking whether a solution is is valid where clearly sometimes there aren't opportunities for a sort of win-win? Yeah, so sometimes I'm not sure they're completely trade-offs. So is it a trade-off to say, well, is it indigenous people's rights or is it this renewable energy installation? Surely there has to be room there for there to be benefits on all fronts if, if time is taken. So taking time to understand indigenous people's concerns and their rights and to include them and give them the right to participation might reveal that they're very interested in reaping some of the benefits that could accrue from having renewable energy produced in their community. But a renewable energy company will only know that if they stop and take the time to engage on a very equal footing with, with the local communities and understand what they, what they want and what they need and to have time to respect their rights. And so it isn't always a trade-off. Quite often, I think there could be co-benefits. Those indigenous um, communities may also be able to advise on the best places to install renewable energy infrastructure to capture the best of the wind or the sun. They may know that this area here is traditionally not being built on because it it floods, for example, or some other local insights that could be really useful to that company. So I'm not sure it's always as easy as trade-offs. I think quite often there's more room for benefits and the sharing of benefits and really um, articulating and, and, and bringing into life what those benefits are through this kind of real collaboration. And and then I think we can get away from there having to be, sometimes there will be trade-offs, yes, but those should be agreed by all parties in consultation. But I think more often than not, if we looked together for shared benefits, we might come out with stronger results. Right. I'll stop thinking about trade-offs and we'll start thinking about shared benefits. (laughs) Thank you, Tara. I want to pick up on you as a person. I mean, you mentioned earlier on about the lecture that you did with the Royal Institute and as an academic, an author, a presenter, an influencer, how could someone who's listening to this podcast be a bit more like you, I guess? I mean, how can you be as influential in this space as possible? What are the, you, what's your mantra in 
how you try and create influence or impact? So I think the the titles don't really ever sum up what your impact is. You know, the most recent thing I've become is like a social entrepreneur. That seems like a very far cry from being a scientist or a policy wonk, which are other things that I've that I am and, and always will be. But it's more about how you use the, your influence. And so I think what's really important is to actually take a bit of time and stop and think about your leadership from, from the perspective first of yourself. So what, what is it that you bring to the table? What are your skills? What are your talents? What drives you? What are you passionate about? So for me, for example, I've always been really passionate about fairness. So if I bring fairness to something else that I'm passionate about, which is protecting our natural resources, our environment, acting on climate change, then that makes logical sense then that I end up working on something like climate justice because fairness and people to me have to be part of part of the solution. So I think taking that time to figure out your own leadership is really important. So what this means for you yourself and then to look and see, well, now with those around me, the other people around me, what impact have I got? What influence have I got? And this is really important because People are influenced by their peers. So I'm more likely to to listen to a mum that I meet at the school gate, a colleague that I work with, someone influential that I know than someone that is just an expert plucked from, you know, a list or someone I listen to on the radio or uh, someone in government telling me what to do. So your power as a peer to influence others around you, whether that's your team members or your family or members of a parent's association. That is, that is really your superpower because that influence is so, so strong. And then I think when we really start to have a bigger impact is when we look at how we can work collectively with others who are like-minded to us. And this is really important to businesses, I think, that once they've started to think about things like climate justice and acting on climate and, and, and poverty within their own businesses, what other businesses can they connect with? How can they form coalitions? How can they be part of a collective that is working for change? And we've seen business do this really effectively in the lead up, for example, to the Paris Agreement, where business was more ambitious than government and business was able to push the governments to align with the more ambitious temperature goals, for example, that some of the most vulnerable countries were bringing to the table in Paris. So it's about figuring that out, like what your own leadership is, how you interact with those around you. And then how to, to, to join any opportunity you can for collective action. That then really maximizes your ripple effect. Um, Tara, I want to round off this conversation today. You are a woman able to sit across a number of different spaces and themes and organizations and key topics. What are the topics or the trends that you're seeing that you just think are ones that others should be aware of and, and perhaps that others aren't necessarily sort of aren't top of mind yet. Yeah. So if I think about this and I think about it also in, in the context of climate justice, I think a couple of things, I see ESG rising, rising, rising finally and becoming really mainstream. But within that, I would say there's two challenges. So one to keep growing it, of course, but then the two specific challenges are again, to make sure that the environmental, social and governance aspects of ESG are, are connected, that we don't create a whole new series of silos within organizations and companies in ESG reporting. So I'd love to see ESG as an opportunity, again, to bring the social and environmental together. But that's something I'll be watching. The other thing is a lot of companies are now setting net zero targets. They're committing to ESG. But I still feel we're doing that at the level of like top line strategy and senior management. I don't see yet 
and of employees being engaged. And I think it's when whole organizations top to bottom are engaging with issues of sustainability and climate that we will really make much bigger progress. And I think this is a real wasted opportunity that a lot of the biggest businesses are not yet taking the time to tap into the wisdom, the ideas, the creativity, but also the ability for their employees to be the best ambassadors for the work that they're doing. A couple other trends that come to mind, I think supply chains are going to be something that, that keep us busy 2021, 2022. I see a lot of disruption in supply chains because of COVID and because of Brexit. And I think this gives us a real chance to stop and think about the stakeholders along the supply chains, the environmental and social impact of our supply chains. And it's a real opportunity to, I think, reform there where, where a lot of reform is needed. Two other things then, I think, you know, the whole issue of diversity and inclusion, race and racism is, is still so strong. And we have to connect that to things like climate. Um, and that hasn't happened enough. And that's obviously a, a really clear articulation of climate justice, as is supply chains, you know, thinking about human rights of people back along our supply chains. But diversity and inclusion, race and racism, and what that means to the action we're trying to take on the climate and biodiversity crisis is something that I think we definitely need to be paying more attention to in the next while. And then the final area is around communications. I joke sometimes and say that, you know, I've done one of the only jobs where over the course of my life working on climate change, the problem has got worse and worse, yet nobody fired me. And I think a big problem that all of us who've been working on climate change and sustainable development have had is that we haven't, we haven't connected yet with people. Our communications haven't been good enough. We, we, we've spoken to, you know, the green minority when we need to be speaking to and communicating with everybody. So I think we have a great challenge ahead in climate um, sustainable development, even in some cases still in kind of poverty related communications to get our, our message across, across much more clearly. So I think that's something that we'll be working a lot on. I know that for us in Change by Degrees, that's going to be a big focus in, in uh, this year and next year. Wow, that's a lot to think about. And I think you mentioned <laughs> it a number of times, Tyra, which is almost like creating that space to, to take time and think about things deeply. And on that note, I want to conclude this um, podcast and just say thank you so very much for your time and insight. And what I will do is I will put all the lots of links into the words that sit alongside the podcast so that others can follow up and, and stay connected and find out more. So Tyra. That'd be great. Thank you, Katie. It's been lovely talking to you. Ah, oh, brilliant to talk with you too. Thank you, Tara. Thank you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 